zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to a very special Vintage Video Patreon pick, where our patrons at the $100 tier are invited to request any pre-80s title they'd like for a custom review from the Vintage Video team, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today, Justin Aylett has asked us to review Same Time Next Year, released November 22nd, 1978. It was written by Bernard Slade, based on his own stage play, Directed by Robert Mulligan and released by Universal Pictures. Bernard Slade's play, Same Time Next Year, opened on Broadway on Pi Day, 1975, at the Atkinson Theater, with Ellen Burstyn and Charles Grodin in the lead roles. Slade's first choice for George, Alan Alda, was unavailable for the first run. Amusingly, the original title of the play was Same Time Next Year, A Romantic Comedy, which actually includes the title of two Bernard Slade film adaptations, 1978's Same Time Next Year and 1983's Romantic Comedy, adapted from his play of the same name. So he had one called Same Time Next Year, a romantic comedy, and then later wrote a play called Romantic Comedy. Oh, okay, that makes more sense, because I was yeah. th- I thought you were telling me that he made two movies based off of this the one same play. play. <laughs> yeah, no, that would be overkill. Over I the mean, course of- one movie might have been overkill. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Over the course of its 1,453 performances, Burston's part would be played by other actresses we've seen, like Sandy Out-of-Towner Dennis and Betsy Mrs. Voorhees Palmer. A Los Angeles production opened with Carol Burnett and Dick Van Dyke. And the male lead in the original London production was Condor Man himself, Michael Crawford. Slade himself portrayed George opposite his own wife as Doris in a Canadian production of the play. The play has been adapted into two films so far, the one we're discussing today and 1994's Hong Kong drama, I Will Wait For You. So it was made into two movies. Yes, but (laughs) not in America in the same language. The rights to the film adaptation of the play were sold to Universal for $1,001,000, specifically to break the record set by Born Yesterday's million dollar sales price. Wow, that's... Seems like a lot, Seems like a lot for... I mean, like, I'm not saying it's a bad story, but, yeah. like... There's not a lot to it. It's not revolutionary. I don't think it's worth a million dollars. I think it was Bernard Slade's name that was big at the time, and okay. they were like, all right. The cast was set right away with Alda replacing the relative unknown Charles Grodin and the studio pushing back against Ellen Burstyn on account of her age. The other Hawkeye, Donald Sutherland, was interested in the George role, but somehow producers were uncertain of his comedic sensibilities, despite M.A.S.H. earlier in the decade. It's like, come on, it's in which, great. In which Alan Alda appeared on the TV series. Right, exactly. I could I could see him doing this role. Yeah, I, would, I actually I think of, of everyone we've mentioned, I think Charles Grodin would have been better because I think Alan Alda is much more grating to me than Charles Grodin is. Oh, yeah. I, I, no, I would have liked Charles Grodin for sure. Yeah. Because um, when Alda's being an asshole, I don't want to kiss him anyway. But when, <laughs> when Grodin is being a jerk, I'm like, oh, that's fine. <laughs> you I, just keep shouting at people. Just like that scene in Catch-22 when he confesses to murdering right. somebody. Right, like, like, oh, Alfie, you're so cute. <laughs> <laughs> but I even think, I, I would have liked Donald Sutherland, too, I think. Like, I know that, 
I know that I yeah. have historically not liked him in some of the movies yeah. that we watched, but I, I think he could have been fine. <laughs> Al Pacino was also briefly considered for George, but Slade was insistent on his first choices for the stage play, Burston and Alda. The exterior of the cabin in which the bulk of the story takes place was built for the film on a temporary foundation, while the interiors were shot on a Universal Studios soundstage. When the film wrapped, Universal had transported the interior furnishings to the location of the exteriors and rebuilt the cabin on a permanent foundation as an exact replica of the cabin from the film. It is now part of the Heritage House Inn, a B&B in Little River, California. The cabin was eventually split into two separate rental properties, nicknamed Same Time and Next Year. <laughs> the property was foreclosed on in 2008 but has reopened as of the summer of 2013. The room has since been renamed again to Same Time Next Year Suite. I looked it up on the Heritage House website, and inside it looks nothing like the cabin <laughs> from this film. But the nightly rate is in the neighborhood of $650, so Jeez. no thank you. Well, I also feel like you open yourself up to some, like, who's on first uh, issues, naming it something like that. Yeah. <laughs> but it could also, like, this would be, like, the ideal place for people just looking for somewhere to host their infidelity. In keeping with the established MPAA rules regarding the F-bomb, Burston's solitary fuck would not have risked an R rating were it not a specific sexual reference, which it obviously is in this film. As a result, the first submission was rated R until the production appealed the decision and it was brought down to PG but without taking out the offending language. I don't mm. understand. I mean, I guess because the rest of it is so not rated R that they were like, yeah. okay, fine. Then you can say fuck and have it be a sexual reference and that's fine. Paul McCartney and Wings submitted a title song for the film, which was not accepted, but later released as a B-side track to 1990 single, Put It There. Hold the celebration, dear, if we do, we'll hold it here, same time next year, I'll be the same. Do you guys recall the last time Paul McCartney submitted a title song, I think with Wings even, that was replaced by a song by Marvin Hamlish? So it didn't make it in whatever movie Correct, we watched? Correct, but we did play a clip of it in the episode because it was also eventually released. Oh. And was it better than the one that was in the movie? I liked it. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't hate the one in the movie, but I liked the Paul McCartney version. The, in this case, I don't care for the Paul McCartney one. Yeah. Um... Any hints about the movie? <laughs> I could sing it to you, but the lyrics are the title that I remember. Um, it's also based on a play. Oh, is it the one with the father and son? No. no. It also has Grodin. Oh, is it the... Is it Catch-22? <laughs> no, it's not Catch-22. That wasn't based on a play. It's based It'd on be a impossible book. to do as a play. <laughs> Unless you're like the kid from Rushmore. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like old times. That's right. Oh, oh I got nice. there. Because it seems like old times. Because it seems like old times. So like long ago. Producers chose Marvin Hamlish's The Last Time I Felt Like This, which earned one of the film's four Academy Award nominations alongside actress, cinematography, and screenplay. It lost in every category. We open with a piano score over shots of the cabin on an ocean cliff at sunset. Cars from the 50s pull off the road and park at the Sea Shadows Inn, established in 1867, Northern California's oldest. 
according to the sign. <laughs> like just like the world's best cup of coffee. Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> Ellen Burstyn as Doris exits one of the vehicles and walks to the front desk to check in. Alan Alda as George gets to the door before her and opens it for her, but he also walks through it before her. They both enter a dining hall and sit across the room from each other. Every once in a while they glance up and smile politely back and forth. The lyrics of the song begin and seem to communicate the thoughts of the characters we're watching. Hello, I don't even know your name, but I'm hoping all the same. This is more than just a simple hello. Hello, do I smile and look away? George brings his drink to Burston's table and joins her. We still haven't heard any synchronous sound. This is all under the opening music. Their conversation gets more and more intimate, and their faces get closer and closer together. We see a long tracking shot toward them sitting in front of a fireplace and staring into each other's eyes. As the song ends, the camera framing lands on the same seaside cabin. A title informs us this is 1951. Inside the cabin, George wakes up beside Doris in bed. He fumbles for his boxers under the blankets and tries to quietly dress himself to sneak out. Burston is already awake and rolls over to watch him dress. When he finally notices she's awake, she says hi. She compliments his clothing and asks the time, so he directs her to his watch as if that will help before admitting that it's three hours and 25 minutes fast. Why don't you get it fixed? I was going to, but I got used to it. She asks if that ever confuses him, but he claims to be good with numbers. He seems annoyed at how beautiful she wakes up, because it would be much easier to sneak out if she were less attractive. He decides they need to address what's happened between them head on. He keeps calling her Dorothy before she corrects him. Dorothy, in the first place, I want you to know that what happened last night was the most beautiful, wonderful, crazy thing that's ever happened to me, and I'll never forget it. Or you. Doris. What? My name is Doris. Your name is Doris? Yes. I've been calling you Dorothy all night. I know. She says she tried to correct him during sex, but he was distracted. She compliments his performance in their third of three sessions, and he's immediately on the defensive about the first couple times. He doesn't want to admit that what they've done is wrong because he has a wife and children at home. Well, how's she going to find out? She knows already. You said she was in New Jersey. It doesn't matter. She knows. How? Doris admits to also being married, but claims that he's only her second sexual partner. George rushes into admitting that he's in love with Doris. He immediately second-guesses himself, pointing out that he knows nothing about her, including whether or not she's read Catcher in the Rye. She admits she never even finished high school. And he claims to be a snob about education. He tells her he screws everything up like this. The first time he had sex, it was in the backseat of a parked car that got rear-ended. He complains that their lovemaking the night before was accompanied by a goofy song on the radio. Take, take last night. You know, you know what the radio was playing while we were making love? No. If I knew you were coming, I'd have baked a cake. So? So that's going to be our song. Is it? Unclear why he already thinks they're going to have a song mm -hmm. or why they will ever see each other again after this encounter. This whole time he's been following her as she prepares for a bath and he gets lost in her eyes again. What is it? I really want to take a bath now. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. When she redresses after the bath, he reaffirms his love for her and also his guilt for what they've done. She misattributes this guilt to Judaism but he says he's not Jewish. 
I tell you, Doris, I feel like slitting my wrists. Now she assumes he's Italian because he's so emotional, but he resents that assessment because he takes pride in his cold logic as a CPA. What are you? Oh, I'm Irish. Well, they're emotional. Why aren't you yelling or crying or something? Oh, I did all of that before in the bathroom. Crying? No, yelling. I didn't hear you. Well, I stuffed a towel in my mouth. George and Doris keep reminding each other how guilty they feel because they know they should feel guilty, and yet they don't, because they're both kind of awful. I mean, I know it wasn't our fault, but I... I keep seeing the faces of my children and the look of betrayal in their eyes. I keep thinking about my marriage vows. I'm sorry, whose fault is it? Yeah. yeah. If not yours? It's crazy that he's trying to make her feel sorry for him and the guilt he has burdened himself with through no fault of his own. And you know the worst part of it all? What? While I'm thinking all this, I have this fantastic heart on. I really wish you hadn't said that. I'm sorry, I just think we should be totally honest with each other. I also wish he hadn't said that. <laughs> because it removes any remaining sympathy anyone might have had for this character. And the fact that he follows up betraying his family with describing his erection. He also pretends that it's in the interest of being completely honest, when in reality he was just looking for a mutual reaction from her. Instead, she explains she's on her way to confession, and now it will take longer. You don't use actual names at confession, do you? No. Because when she first said, I think she she phrases it, the nuns are going to be missing me. And I was yeah. like, it's like, is she a nun? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> he invites her back to bed, and she worries they will only feel worse, but George is already over his guilt guilt that he probably never had in the first place oh no no i'm over that now i just remembered something what the russians have the bomb we could all be dead tomorrow he follows up this bizarre threat by pointing out that as adults they have nothing to be ashamed of except of course the fact that they have embarked on and are pursuing an extramarital affair there is a sudden knock at the door and george freaks out that he might be discovered here with doris which the joke is that we have nothing to be ashamed about i'm freaking out yeah this is his room that we're in currently, right? Yes. Correct. Okay. That's why he's the one who has been elected to answer the door, apparently. Because I'm trying to figure out why he was so anxious to get his clothes on to leave if if it was his room. Because then he could just be like, a woman broke into my room. <laughs> Arrest her, please. And then he shoots her. Pretends that she was an <laughs> intruder. Can you go into the bathroom and close the door? Surrender, Dorothy. <laughs> I'm not Dorothy, I'm Doris. Doris takes her things and tries to hide in the bathroom, but George advises against it since whoever is here will obviously check the bathrooms for some reason. At the last second, he finds her girdle and tucks it into his pocket. Doris ducks out onto the patio as George opens the door. The person at the door is Chalmers, the man who runs this bed and breakfast, and he's here with the ladder. Doris waits for the man to leave and then re-enters the cabin. It's okay. It was all Mr. Chalmers with my breakfast. I was very calm. He didn't suspect a thing. Oh, good. He didn't ask about the girdle. She gestures to the girdle sticking way up out of his pocket where Chalmers couldn't have missed it. Oh, great. Now he probably thinks I'm a homo. George is embarrassed because he books this cabin the same weekend every year to do taxes for a friend's nearby vineyard. George takes a moment to assure Doris that this is his first affair. Aw, oh, sure, don't worry. I could tell. He tries to brush past this comment, but his ego won't let him. So when he asks how she knew that he hasn't cheated before, she points out all of his clumsy self-injuries the night before. 
George is a little hurt by the observation, but appreciates her honesty and offers some of his own. I told you I was a married man with two children. You're not? I'm a married man with three children. I thought it would make me seem less married. He claims he's felt especially guilty this morning, keeping his third child a secret as if anyone gave a shit. I mean, denying little Debbie like that. Doris is quick to forgive his pointless lie. Just as they're parting ways, Doris finally brings up that she's in town for a religious retreat. She comes here every year while her husband takes the kids to her mother-in-law's in Bakersfield for her birthday. Turns out she and her mother-in-law don't get along on account of her first grandchild interrupting her husband's education toward dentistry. Now he sells waterless cooking, which is kind of like a pressure cooker, but obviously without all the added water. Huh. Finally, they move back inside and it's Doris's turn to describe her home life. She has a humble home and a decent life, but she doesn't expect any more than she gets. But depression does occasionally strike. She seems embarrassed to want more, but George says he understands. They are using each other as therapy and bonding very tightly together. You know, I can really talk to you. It's just amazing. I find myself saying things to you that I didn't even know I thought. I noticed that yesterday, right after we met in the restaurant. We had instant rapport. Did you notice that too? No, but I know we really hit it off. Was she corpulent? Very corpulent? <laughs> no, no, no. Just really round. <laughs> <laughs> when Doris starts to ask about Mrs. George, he decides on a format for these conversations moving forward. They will limit spousal discussion to two stories. One that shows a negative aspect of their marriage and one highlight. As the negative story, George claims that his wife knows psychically whenever he does anything wrong. I could be a million miles away. If I so much as look at another woman, it goes off like an alarm. Oh, I see. I just know that last night at exactly 1.22 a.m., she sat bolt upright in bed with her head going ding, 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 ding. How do you know it was 1.22? Because I have peripheral vision and I noticed my watch said 4.47. Oh. Oh, you have peripheral vision? Doesn't everyone have peripheral vision? No, you ableist. What, blind people don't have peripherals even? There's people that definitely don't have peripheral per, 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 per vision. <laughs> everyone can say peripheral, right? <laughs> <laughs> Jerk. As a positive, he admits that his wife has given him confidence. He claims she accomplished this feat just by marrying him. She didn't have to do anything to bolster his self-confidence other than not say no when he said marry me back when women couldn't say no. <laughs> Pressed for a terrible story about her husband, Doris settles on something she overheard once. He'd had a bit to drink watching the Gillette fights, a televised boxing event at the time, and was talking with his friends and mentioned his time in the military as the best years of his life, despite spending them as a prisoner of war in Japan. She moves on to the good story and mentions that her husband is kind of a chubby, no-nonsense grump. And one day, he went out with her son to fly a kite, and when she drove by later, she noticed her son was asleep, but her husband was still playing with the kite by himself. I guess that's a good story. <laughs> it doesn't sound like he was enjoying himself. She's like, yeah. oh, he, his face was red and he was dragging the kite back and forth, and it's like, was he just trying to get it to fly so that he could wake the kid up and show him that it worked, or was he having fun with the kite by himself? George admits that Helen has nice qualities like that, too. Who's Helen? My wife. You said her name was Phyllis. I know, I lied. Phyllis? Helen? What's the difference? I'm married. Look, I was nervous. I was afraid you'd try to look me up or something. I didn't want to leave any clues. 
Is your name really George? Well, of course it is. You think I'd lie about my own name? Doris suddenly suggests they share photos of their children. One of George's kids is in a flying pose, and Doris asks if he's trying to be Superman. What does he want to be, Superman? No, Peter Pan. I'm kind of worried about him. <laughs> Which I just read as classic early 50s homophobia. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what that meant, right? But they kind of drop it after this sequence. This, this The film is broken up into six visits, and we don't touch on that again after this point. Regardless, they're both charmed by each other's children. They sit together quietly for a moment and then kiss each other goodbye and head to the bed for one last roll in the hay to end the 1951 segment of the film. Now we get a montage of photos from the passing years, starting with General MacArthur. Coincidentally, the actor playing Chalmers played a general in the film MacArthur. We see Howdy Doody, President Truman, Lucille Ball, a trial on organized crime, the Nixons, a still of Deborah Kerr and Burt Lancaster from From Here to Eternity, Adlai Stevenson sitting in a chair, Eisenhower holding up a peace sign in a back seat, a theater audience in 3D glasses, the McCarthy hearings, Edward R. Murrow, and Gary Cooper in High Noon. Sounds great. I love Gary Cooper. <laughs> I feel like these montages would work better for me if I could place most of those in a year, and I can't. Yeah. <laughs> a kid in Davy Crockett merch... Marilyn Monroe's floating dress photo, and finally Sal Mineo and James Dean from Rebel Without a Cause. The opening song comes back hard over the montage, and at the end we see it is now five years later, 1956. They've strung a fifth anniversary banner over the same room's piano, and just as Doris comes out of the bathroom in her anniversary dress, George launches into their song on the piano. If I knew you were coming, I'd have baked a cake, baked a cake. Baked a cake, if I knew you were coming, I'd have baked a cake. How'd you do? How'd you do? How'd you do? They head back to the same dining hall together for what appears to be an annual dinner date. As they wait to be seated, Doris makes a literary reference, and George is excited to hear it. It's not exactly the life of Scott and Zelda, but we're surviving. Uh, let's go. Scott and Zelda, huh? He started reading. Oh, you don't know the half of it. She joined a book club, possibly specifically to impress him, or because he makes her feel inferior about this kind of stuff. It seems they no longer have to hide from Chalmers, who might even mistake them for a married couple themselves. He greets them at their table. George says they moved from New Jersey to Connecticut, and they now live a more rustic life in a remodeled barn. George is quick to share his bad Helen story by explaining that she is obsessed with redecorating now, and it's all she talks about. They bring up Michael again, George's Peter Pan son, and George mentions that he was nearly suspended for writing a graphic essay about getting erections on public transportation. Doris forces him to admit that, as worried as he is about Michael, there's something special about that kid, and George can't deny it. He kisses Doris and thanks her for this annual tradition of theirs. Despite all the effort they put into looking presentable tonight, they decide to head immediately back to the room because they can't wait to explore each other. Right as they climb into bed, the phone rings, and when George hears one of his children on the line, he sits straight up and throws Doris to the floor. Hello? Yes, this is Daddy. Apparently one of his kids has lost a tooth and decided to call him in her excitement. For this entire call, Doris is recovering from just having been carelessly thrown to the floor. When he hangs up, George claims loudly again to feel very guilty about what they're doing. Not so guilty that he'd ever consider stopping. He asks Doris if she ever feels guilty, because in his opinion she's not making a big enough show of her guilt, 
and she confesses that she experiences her guilt in private, which is how people who actually feel guilty do it. <laughs> When people loudly proclaim they feel guilty about something, it's because they want you to think that they feel guilty, not yeah. because it's true. To change the subject, George asks Doris for the bad story about her husband, Harry, and she says he went bankrupt from being too honest a salesman. He kind of lacks the killer instinct. Actually, it's one of the things about him that I like best. Suddenly, George is talking about boarding a flight in 30 minutes so he can help little Debbie find her tooth, and Doris is understandably upset. He starts rapidly packing to leave, and when he asks if she's seen his hairbrush, she throws it violently across the room. She finally calls George out on his loud guilt bullshit. You go around like an open nerve saying, oh yes, I'm cheating, but look how guilty I feel. So I must really be a nice guy. Then, then to top it all, you have the incredible arrogance of thinking you're the only person in the world with a conscience. Well, that doesn't make you a nice guy, George. You know what that makes you? A horse's ass! Instead of responding directly to the accusation, he just complains that she is smarter than she has been in the past to see through his nonsense. He asks her for a ride to the airport, and we cut straight there. He tells her he'll see her next year, and she doubts it, because why bother if this might happen? She admits that in their time apart this year, she couldn't stop thinking about him, and eventually decided on going full no contact. She only showed up to inform him of the decision, but then, at the last second, she couldn't commit to it. She reminds George that his plane is leaving, and he runs to it, but after it pulls away, he walks back to her, having decided to stay the weekend after all. Probably because he realized she's right, that his guilt is just for show, and he doesn't really care that much about his family. We get another montage of pop culture transitioning us to their next visit together. We see Grace Kelly and Prince Rainier, a marquee for Elvis Presley in Love Me Tender, Satchmo blowing on a horn, Adlai Stevenson again, a nuclear protest. Do you guys recall the last nuclear protest we saw? Oh man, it's like on the tip of my tongue. It was in Sydney, Australia. Uh, Winter of Our Dreams? That's right. We see Nixon jabbing a finger into Khrushchev's chest, an Atlas rocket, people rocking hula hoops, a 58 Cadillac, a boxing match between Floyd Patterson and Ingmar Johansson, Jay Silverheels and Clayton Moore on the set of The Lone Ranger, Elvis again at a press conference in his army uniform, Jack Lemmon in The Apartment, who will happen to star in the next Bernard Slade play adaptation Tribute in 1980, the Kennedy-Nixon debates, and then Kennedy's inauguration. It's five years later again, 1961, their 11th weekend together. George argues with someone on the phone about the state of his marriage, mentioning explicitly that he's dealing with impotence and he has already consulted with doctors on the issue. He claims that he'll be seeing an expert while he's here in town and we won't learn till he hangs up that he's having this entire sensitive conversation with his mother. Goodbye, mother! Outside, we see Doris emerge from a car pregnant. And, of course, my first thought is that somehow this is George's baby, even though that's obviously impossible. Right. Because they only meet once every 12 months. Yeah. Chalmers does a double take when he notices the eight-month baby bump. When Doris enters the cabin, George is getting ready in the bathroom. She walks to the corner to put some music on, and so that when George sees her at first, it's from behind, so we get a proper pregnancy reveal moment. George is all decked out like Hugh Hefner in a smoking jacket, clearly ready for sex, but his face melts to recognize her condition. God. What did you do to yourself? Well, I can't take all the credit. It was sort of a mutual effort. She has to remind George that his shocked face is not a respectful greeting, and he eventually crosses the room to kiss her. You okay, pal? 
Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm, I'm just a little surprised. You're surprised. I insisted upon visiting the dead rabbit's grave. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we get that reference now. Do you guys recall the last time we referenced murdering rabbits as a pregnancy test? <laughs> I'm trying to remember what movie it was in, though. Was it Just Tell Me What You Want? No, not that far back. More recent than our first episode. <laughs> that doesn't help. I don't remember who was pregnant. I believe the actress who was pregnant was the daughter of Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, if that helps. It really doesn't help. <laughs> no. She was the secondary lead of the film. And her love interest, who's to blame for the rabbit's death, was Neil Diamond. Oh, the um, jazz singer? That's right. So what did Doctor say? Another rabbit bit the dust. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> They're both shitty at hiding their thoughts on this situation, with George pretending that nothing has changed since she turned around, and Doris pretending not to know what's bothering him. Is there something on your mind? Uh, uh no, no, not anymore, no. Every one of these reunions seems to start on a very confrontational note, and I'm surprised that they keep committing to these annual visits. Doris reflects on their use of sex as an icebreaker in the past, and George makes sex with a pregnant woman sound outright revolting. Uh, Doris, um, if we're not going to do it, do you mind if we don't talk about it? Doris decides that for this visit they can try a new exercise where she admits a dark secret to him. In this case, she says that she has nightly sex dreams about him, and they all take place underwater for whatever reason. It's in caves, grottos, swimming pools, but always underwater. Isn't that weird? I'm really bothered by his response to her. Like... Well, how just how shitty he is in general? Well, yeah, I mean, in general, a lot of the time, but especially here, I'm like, she's still the person that you meet every year. She yeah. just happens to be pregnant. Doesn't really change anything. Yeah, it's... It's weird, too, because it doesn't feel like anything has happened in the last five years right. since they last yeah. talked. It, it feels like we're literally seeing every visit, not every fifth visit, which is strange. When forced to offer a secret in return, George instead divulges that he can't swim, which isn't a dark secret and mostly just a harsh truth to throw cold water on her fantasies. Or to not throw cold water on them. On a walk later, George decides to open with a complimentary story about his wife, he says that Helen isn't afraid to embarrass herself. Like, for instance, on a recent trip to London, she handed their luggage to a man outside the hotel who, as it happens, did not work there. In fact, he was the Danish ambassador, and when she found out, she asked for his restaurant recommendations in Copenhagen. He politely obliged. For the negative story, he mentions that he is having performance issues in bed, and his wife made a crack about it. Just as I was going to sleep, Helen turned to me and said, It's funny. When I married a CPA, I always thought it would be his eyes that would go first. Somehow he blames her for his impotence. He admits that he and Helen don't discuss it much, but that he presumes she judges him for this failure in his husbandly duty. He asks how her pregnancy has been progressing, and she uses enough adjectives that he feels the need to compliment her vocabulary, which, coming from Alan Alda, will always sound rude and condescending. Your vocabulary's improving. Oh, you don't know. You happen to be speaking to a high school graduate. Doris isn't self-conscious enough to be offended and announces that in the intervening year, she has passed the equivalent of her GED to officially become a high school graduate. She points out the irony that pregnancy is what took her out of high school in the first place, and this latest pregnancy is the only reason she had time to go back and finish. 
Her husband, Harry, has moved on to insurance sales, but he seems fulfilled by it. George helps her to the couch where she can be more comfortable and he can sit beside her. He updates her that his son, Michael, is a journalist with the Associated Press now. There's an awkward moment here where Doris catches George looking at her a certain way, but when she asks for an explanation, he stammers his way out of it and asks for Harry's good story. When she pushes back, demanding an explanation, he admits that he's feeling aroused just from sitting beside her and touching her legs. She has cured his impotence, but he thinks that makes him a weird pervert. What kind of a pervert am I? Staring at a 200-pound pregnant woman and I'm getting hot. What a fucking asshole yeah. this guy is. Well, I'll tell you something. That is about the nicest thing that anybody said to me in months. It's not funny, Doris. So now he's mad at her because she's laughing off his insult. George crosses the room to the piano and plays out a concerto as quickly as he can to keep his hands distracted from her. She's impressed with his playing, which he has not shown off in the past, except presumably for their fifth anniversary performance of If I Knew You Were Coming, I'd Have Baked a Cake. That's incredible! Are you as good as I think you are? How good do you think I am? Sensational! I'm not as good as you think I am. She tells George she has an idea and leads him to the bed, offering something in place of sex to relieve him. As soon as they're kissing, her labor pains begin. She is in the window that a child could reasonably be expected to show up, and they are in a conundrum. George is insanely slow on the uptake for a father of three. Oh. What is it? Ah. What? For God's sake, what is it? <laughs> Doris, what the hell is the matter? Immediately, George announces how guilty he feels for causing this, because that's what this pregnancy is really about. Him. <laughs> He's concerned about what this will mean for his impotence issues instead of caring about her baby surviving tonight. When she explains explicitly that she expects the baby right now, George freaks out again. She asks him to call around for the nearest hospital, but he literally only cares about his reputation as a married father of three who also happens to have cheated on his wife a dozen times now. George, like it or not, I am going to have a baby! We're not married. It's going to look odd. She starts crying when she can't get through to him that this is a life or death conversation and he's concerned about his wife knowing the truth. George finally picks up the phone to ask Chalmers where the nearest hospital is and lies that Doris is his wife and the baby's coming. George has Chalmers transfer him to the hospital. For no reason other than to win his argument with Doris, he asks an extra question at the end from the medical personnel he manages to get a hold of. Could you, uh, could you just answer one uh, question? Would, um, would erotic contact in the last stages of pregnancy bring on premature... No reason. Just, just interested. Uh, just, you know. Uh... He tells her that her doctor is ready to meet them at the nearest hospital, but here she admits that her water has broken and the baby is coming right now so George will have to deliver it himself. She suggests getting a doctor on the phone to give him instructions, and he's panicking yet again. Doris sits up in pain and says she feels the baby, and finally, George takes some worthwhile action. He assures her that he's here to help and that everything will be okay. You think I play the piano well? Yeah. Well, you can see the way I deliver babies. <laughs> well, why have you been freaking out this whole time, asshole? <laughs> We get another black and white montage as we time travel to 1966. We see John Glenn, the astronaut, Raymond Burr as Perry Mason, Andy Griffith and Ron Howard on the Andy Griffith Show set, the Berlin Wall, Natalie Wood in West Side Story, Vince Edwards as Ben Casey, a civil rights demonstration in Washington, D.C., MLK Jr. speaking there, 
Gregory Peck in To Kill a Mockingbird from the same director as this film, JFK in The Oval, and then Johnson being sworn in on Air Force One, JFK Jr. saluting his father's procession, a banner for the Beatles, Annette Funicello and Frankie Avalon, Senator Barry Goldwater, Lyndon B. Johnson with Hubert Humphrey on horses, and a rare pro-war demonstration on a college campus. When we cut back into the cabin this time, George is in a three-piece suit with his hair slicked back. He pours himself a drink and stares somberly ahead for a moment. Suddenly, Doris enters with a sting of hippie music, like you'd hear for a scene transition on that 70s show. Hey man, what do you say? It's really weird. This this whole segment. I, yeah. like, I hated it, actually. Sits out, like, you know, I, I, this movie is not my favorite kind of movie. Right. It's not horrible, but it's not something that I love. Right. But it would have been much, much better without this entire section. It I get really that they want to show me. how they're changing with the times, but the characters are so inconsistent. Well, I, I, you do change with the times, but it, 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 I feel like it has to be more subtle than this. This is like yeah. hitting you over the head with a brick about yeah, it. Yeah, every time they're a different stereotype of a yeah. person. She's all dressed up like a hippie, which seems like a strange turn for this character. They share a quick kiss, and then Doris takes it to a bizarrely vulgar place for the person we've come to know. So, wanna fuck? What? They're so at odds at the start of this reunion that they seem never to have met each other. It turns out, George is driving now from Los Angeles for these visits. He works as a high-class business manager in Beverly Hills and makes a terrific living. He finally picks on her outfit and she explains that she enrolled at Berkeley. This was back when a mother of four could just sign up for college and pay for it with spare change out of her couch. <laughs> she was inspired to finish her education during a dinner where they hosted her husband's boss and she held her own in conversation. Doris mentions feeling so thoroughly entrenched in mom mode that at one point she found herself cutting the man's meal for him. She decided it was time to branch out. George is disgusted by her hippie talk, and disappointed to learn that, along with Berkeley, she engages in regular anti-war protests. He doesn't want to talk politics or sex, and she offers religion as a subject. So far, you've turned down sex and politics. Would you like to try religion? I think I'll try a Librium. Librium being a recently approved sedative medication for the treatment of anxiety. They head out to their usual dinner spot again, and before dinner... Doris keeps needling George for an explanation on what's bothering him, and he launches into a full-on racist tirade. What is bugging you? Bugging me? I'll tell you what's bugging me. The blacks are burning down the cities. There's a Harvard professor telling my kids the only way to happiness is to become doped-up zombies. And I have a teenage son with hair so long that from the back he looks exactly like Ivan DiCarlo. Who we've seen so far in Minnesota reviews of Guiana Cult of the Damned and The Silent Scream, and for our regular episode review of The Man with Bogart's Face. She is amused at his moral judgment of the younger generation after the life he's led with her. That was different. Our relationship is not based on a casual one-night stand. No, it's been 15 one-night stands. It's not the same. We shared things. My God, I, I helped deliver your child, remember? Remember? I consider that our finest hour. He asks how her youngest is doing, and we learn that she named the baby after him. How is she? Georgia? Oh, she's very healthy, very noisy, and very spoiled. Back at the cabin, Doris demands a shitty Helen story. 
Apparently, they went to a party together where he embarrassed himself by walking into a closet instead of out a door. When he finally revealed himself to the partygoers, Helen just laughed at him like she does it herself. Well, it was a pretty awkward situation, but I probably could have carried it off except for what Helen did. You know what she did? What? She peed on the carpet. <laughs> Well, not right away. First she started to laugh. Do you guys recall another time that Ellen Burstyn was less amused by someone peeing on the carpet? Not in a movie we've covered. But a character we've discussed was in the scene. Oh, hmm. okay. <laughs> I have no idea. The character in the scene was astronaut Billy Cutshaw from the Ninth Configuration. Um. What is that movie a sequel to? Oh, the, um... Exorcist? Yes, The Exorcist, starring Ellen that? Burstyn and Reagan peeing on the carpet. I didn't realize that was her. Yeah, she's the mom. George is pretty pissed off that she thinks this is so funny, and Doris admits that this whole time she has loved his Helen stories. They would probably be good friends. Doris points out how stuffy and almost inhuman he seems on this particular visit. She admits that his self-assuredness is kind of a turnoff, and when he admits that the world is getting complicated and he can't keep up, then she's suddenly interested in him again. They begin to kiss on the couch, and George is shocked to find Doris isn't wearing a bra. George, you're so forties. <laughs> I'm a very old-fashioned man. Next, you'll be telling me you voted for Goldwater. <laughs> I did. This admission is enough to scare Doris across the room away from him. She demands an explanation for this vote, and he says he did it because Goldwater promised to end the war in Vietnam. She implies that he would end it with a nuke. Doris reminds him that America was using that country for a proxy war, and he doesn't care. He thinks they should nuke it off the planet. She's horrified to hear him endorse genocide, and amazingly hangs around to hear more from this man. Are you serious? You're damn right I am. Wipe the sons of bitches off the face of the earth. Oh my god, I don't know anything about you. What kind of a man are you? Right now, a very frustrated one. I don't understand, like, her swing was, you know, in terms of character, was really awful. But his is, like, unforgivable in terms right. of, like, just just as a person, are you guys really actually going to be friends, let alone lovers? Yeah, I feel like at the beginning he was annoying. He's not the kind of person I would choose to hang out with on purpose. But then at this point, it's like, I would definitely cut this person off the second they said yeah. this it's like never going to talk to you again this has been a terrible visit goodbye she calls him a fascist and he tells her that she has everything all wrong let's just drop it Dor no, no i'm not, let's just not, drop not going it. to drop it you stand for everything that i'm against well maybe you're against the wrong thing but you used to believe exactly as i do now what happened i changed but why because michael was killed he was probably in the region with the Associated Press in Vietnam and was apparently helping a man into a Red Cross helicopter when he was shot. Doris reacts to the news as if she herself lost family. Suddenly, his transformation makes perfect sense to her. No. No. It still doesn't make a <laughs> lot of okay. sense. Not okay. No. Are, Not aren't okay. You, aren't you mad that you were in this war in the first place? Don't You don't want to take out well, an entire country because of well, it. Well, he wants like, to take out the country as revenge for what they did to his kid. Who An should never have country. been there in the first right, place. exactly. Ugh, that's so infuriating. She gets him to tell the story, and he laments that since it happened over 4th of July weekend that he hasn't found the nerve to cry about it. He just can't find the tears. 
Doris takes a seat beside him on the couch and sobs into his shoulder as he apologizes for how he's presented himself this year. Her tears seem to finally loosen him as she cures his emotional impotence this time. They cry together. It just seems to be one damn... <laughs> and we get another montage carrying us through to 1972, which I think is six years. It's the first time that we're taking a longer break between the visits. We see an anti-war protest, Bob Hope on a USO tour, a frame of Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty from Bonnie and Clyde, RFK Alive, RFK dead, which seems unnecessarily <laughs> bleak. The 68 Democratic National Convention. Tommy Smith and John Carlos raising fists from a tri-level Olympic podium. John Voigt and Dustin Hoffman in Midnight Cowboy. Johnny Carson, the moon landing. Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, a man passing a joint. Dan Rowan and Dick Martin on the set of Laugh-In. Janis Joplin, Nixon shaking hands with Mao Zedong, and a women's lib protest. The same music plays again, but quieter and sadder now. This time, we kick off the year with a post-coital conversation, and it's the fastest we've seen them get down to business so far. George is also sporting a creepy mustache now, <laughs> and it's no good. <laughs> Doris mentions she has grandkids now. George tells her she's the youngest grandma he's ever seen, and she passes along the compliment to her parents and her plastic surgeon. Apparently, she has money now, and somehow Harry didn't notice her cosmetic surgeries. Although she probably hasn't had any because they wouldn't do that between scenes of a movie. So. Right. George's bad Helen story doesn't seem to make any sense at all. She was tired one night and took sleeping pills but stuck them in her ears? Then the next day, while the doctor was digging the stuff out of her ears, he said, you know, these can be taken orally. <laughs> all of his stories have been worthless and redundant so far, but this one is especially stupid. But every Helen story is just, she embarrassed herself and then laughed. I don't know why this still pisses him off so much after 21 <laughs> years of it. It's like, yeah, that's what she does. Remember? Doris runs an event planning business now, and her assistant Liz is calling for details. Somehow, she mixed up a 16-guest event and a 60-guest event, which seems like a huge fuck-up. Yeah. Yes. You're leaving this person in charge of your business? She asks Liz if Harry has called for her, and it sounds like he hasn't. Does Harry know you're here? No. Harry still thinks I go on retreat. George feels the need to diagnose every adjustment to Doris's mood with psychologist speak, and she's quickly annoyed by it. When did you go into analysis? How did you know I was in analysis? Just a wild guess. What made you start? This time, it's George's turn to be a hippie, and the only outward sign is the mustache. <laughs> Again, it seems unrealistic that they would switch roles so drastically, with her becoming the business-minded professional and him being an open-minded free thinker all of a sudden. Yeah, it's so it's 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 so frustrating that they're like in the course of 6 years they are 180 degrees of what they were before. Yeah. It sounds like George has given up his Beverly Hills lifestyle and now whenever he needs pocket change, he plays piano in a San Fernando Valley cocktail bar. Liz calls again to discuss an offer on a contract and Doris plays confident hardball with the client. Well, if he doesn't like it, tell him to shove it. And don't worry, he won't. I thought at first that they were talking about divorce, divorce? proceedings. Yeah, that would make sense. She announces that she's expanding her business in an effort to increase her income, which is something he has, until now, endorsed wholeheartedly. What? Money. 
Is that why you went into business? To make money? No, I wanted power, too. Doris accuses George of typical American sexism for criticizing her efforts to pursue a career after he did the same thing for 20 years. Hey, I think it's great to have a hobby. A hobby? We grossed a half million the first year. Doris also announces that her husband left her four days ago, and she doesn't know where he's disappeared to. There were hints in their previous encounter that he was not entirely respectful of her interest in education, and he might be just as sexist as George is. George hypothesizes that on the way to being a better person, he could tell Helen today about their long love affair, and she would handle it maturely. George, you're full of shit. He starts to use his psychology powers to drill into her marriage conflicts. She feels betrayed that she stood by Harry for so long after he failed in every pursuit, and when she found success, he disappeared. I don't love him any less just because he's a failure as a provider, so why should he love me less just because I'm a success? He asks her if she wants Harry back, and she confesses that right now she might be biased. But ask me again tomorrow, and I'll probably give you a different answer. Why? Because tomorrow I won't have you. He realizes she is making a genuine proposal for them to make things official, and he reluctantly turns her down. She tells him she's headed out to the car to bring in some of her company's catering, and while she's gone, the phone rings. And George answers, assuming it's Liz, but it's not. Harry, um, uh, would, you, uh, would you just uh, hold on for a minute, please? So this confused me. This is why I was asking earlier was, whose room is this that they meet in? Yeah, I mean, at this point, they're probably not bothering to pay for two rooms. Right. I, I, I mean, I guess, because Chalmers doesn't know right. one way or the other. That makes sense. But but then you can't just answer the phone. I mean, you can if you think the only person who's going to call is an assistant who mm. thinks that she's at a retreat. It's like, this is the number at the retreat. Call it. Doris seems to have brought several boxes of food, and George should probably be helping her carry them inside. But instead, he concocts a plan to rescue himself from her proposal. He breaks it to Harry that he's aware of their marriage problems. I've known Doris for 20 years, and I feel that through her I know you. We've been meeting this same weekend for 20 years. He tells Harry that Doris still loves him, and as proof, he shares a story we didn't hear about her coming home and finding him reading stories to a living room full of Indian guides when Doris didn't make it home in time to play den mother. Weirdly, the story he was telling these kids was about his time in the war, which seems like something 10-year-old girls wouldn't be completely enraptured by. He explains that when Doris found him at the meeting, she immediately ran back to her car to thank God for such a wonderful husband. Harry sits with the story for a moment, and just before George hangs up, he adds a final detail to rescue Doris from complete honesty. Yes, I've known Doris for 20 years. And I'm not ashamed to admit that it's been one of the most intimate, satisfying experiences of my life. My name? My name is Father Michael O'Hurley. And so he has erased all evidence of their affair by posing as a priest from the retreat that she has attended annually as far as Harry knows. We get our last montage transitioning from 1972 to 1977. We see Mick Jagger, a gas shortage, Senator Sam Irvin, Nixon resigns headlines, Elton John, Patty Hearst with the SLA, a Jaws poster, the Fonz, Gerald Ford at the 76th Republican National Convention, a bicentennial celebration around Liberty Island, Mondale and Carter, Stallone and Talia Shire and Rocky, Elvis and Vegas, LeVar Burton as Kunta Kinte on Roots, Representative Bella Abzug, a woman's rights activist, Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat shaking hands, and finally R2-D2 and C-3PO. 
We start this final segment on the deck off the cabin, and they notice Chalmers nearby, and suspect that they may be older now than he was when they first arrived. George is an accounting teacher at UCLA now. Doris has sold her catering business to a chain and has retired in the last five years. Harry had a mild heart attack, and she wanted to spend their time together. She's thinking of getting into local politics. George asks as delicately as possible if her marriage woes are behind her. She finally notices that George hasn't brought any luggage this time, and he tells her he can't stay long. He drops a couple of heavy truth bombs on her, starting with the revelation that Helen has known about their affair for a decade. He found out she knew two months ago from a mutual friend of theirs named Connie. All those years, and she never even hinted that she knew. I guess that's the nicest story I've ever told about her. Your wife is an amazing woman. She passed away, Doris. I lost her six months ago. Doris says that she feels like she's lost a best friend, despite never having met the woman. And it's played like a, oh, how sweet of her to not bring it up and to start a fight about it. And it's like, no, that's just sad. Yeah. She spent the last 10 years of her life knowing that you were cheating on her this and whole time. And she died that way without Yeah, ever without you ever bothering it. to explain. Yeah. She knew you were a liar and that you never came clean about it. And that every year you would go yeah. on this retreat. Yeah, and you would hang out with your kids at home and know that your husband was out having sex with a stranger. That's so fucked up. And it's played like an adorable, sweet thing that this woman did. Apparently, after it happened, he tried to reach out to Doris directly, which is how he knew before she mentioned it that she'd sold her business. He called once, and when no one answered, he didn't try again for fear of intruding further. They start to look back on the years they've spent together, and George has managed to calculate the number of times they've made love over the years. Did you know we made love 113 times? What? I figured that out on my Bomar calculator. <laughs> Do you guys recall the last time we heard someone say that they'd figured out that they'd had sex 113 times on a Bomar calculator? What? This has happened before? Yes. Oh my god. I do not remember that. The film also starred a Hawkeye from MASH. Devil and Max Devlin? No, there's no Hawkeye in that. Oh. That's, the, wrong that's the doctor. Yeah. I guess they're both doctors. <laughs> that's the whole point. <laughs> What are our other Hawkeye movies that we've covered? Yeah, I'm trying to think. Four Seasons? No. Um, That's Alan Alda. We're talking about the other Hawkeye. Damn it. I don't remember. They all blend together. Donald Sutherland. Smashing Seals. What is that movie called? Not that one. Not that one. Okay. Um, It's the good one that he's been in so far. He was in a lot of bad ones and one good one. He was in one good one the problem he makes so many bad movies i can't remember it was considered an upset when he wasn't nominated for best actor oh um uh the fucking best picture winner that's right the why can't i the ordinary people ordinary people is correct (laughs) in ordinary people last season mary tyler moore and donald sutherland attend this play together at a community theater and this line of dialogue is spoken oh. in the scene they're watching. Do you know we've made love 113 times? <laughs> I figured it out in my Bomar calculator. That's not fair. <laughs> yes, it is. It's not fair. Actually, that movie has a lot of... I guess that's why they went to this play. That right. makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, and Donald Sutherland wanted to be the star of this movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wouldn't have caught that by myself. Justin Aylett pointed that out to me. He was like, oh, and you guys have actually heard a line from this movie in the past. So that was how I, I was able to get that one. 
He tells her he knows everything about her, and then he proves himself wrong immediately. You take two sugars, right? No, one. Oh <laughs> uh, Well, okay, well, maybe I don't know everything about you. I actually think it would have been really funny if she said, well, not everything. And he said, oh, are you still keeping secrets from me? And she admitted that her name actually is Dorothy. <laughs> <laughs> she got uncomfortable that first day because she was like, I don't want you to look me up. It's his turn to propose to her now and her turn to turn him down. When he asks again, she reminds him that there is a man in her life who she's been in love with longer than him. Though at this point, there's a 50-50 chance that Harry will die first and they can just keep checking in here every year. Isn't there always a 50-50 chance that the other person will well, die first? Well, no, because before he had a wife also. But I'm saying at this point, there's now a 50-50 chance that the two of them will be the surviving spouses. Ah. He takes credit here for saving her marriage six years ago, but she points out that he only did that to avoid having to leave Helen to marry her. You always could see through me, couldn't you? George makes a final threat that he can't stay unmarried for long, and if she passes on this opportunity, he will likely marry Connie in her place. If that happens, he can't come back here in the future because Connie wouldn't allow these visits. I guess what I'm trying to say is that we'll never see each other again. Doris, for God's sake, marry me. He asks one final time for her hand, but she sticks to her guns. I can't. Before he leaves, he asks who her favorite movie stars were, and she mentions Sir Lawrence Olivier, and Marlon Brando, and Cary Grant, and Lon McAllister. Of the four, I didn't recognize McAllister, probably because his last film was in the early 50s, but it made it feel like one of those Star Trek lists where the last yeah. example of the names is just a made-up name because it's from the future. <laughs> He leaves the cabin without so much as a goodbye. He leaves her alone, and she stands there soaking in his absence and coming to terms with the finality of his departure. She cries on the bed for a moment until George returns with luggage. She has called his bluff, and Connie is much too old to be a suitable wife. He was just screwing around. She's like 80-something. He's such a dick. I know. He's, he's, he's terrible at every turn, and she's like, Ah, you... He just wanted to ruin the last years of her marriage to Harry by forcing her to leave him right before he dies. And only, only after his wife dies. Right, yeah. Like, yeah. Now, now that I'm in a situation where I feel like it's okay, let's do this. Yeah, yeah. I'm totally comfortable. So you are too, right? And, and I can't stay unmarried. And you proposed to me last time while your husband was still alive. And, now, and I waited till now to change my answer. No. Look, I wanted you to marry me, and I figured if you thought somebody else wanted me, I'd stand a better chance. <laughs> okay, maybe I didn't think things through. She laughs at the heinous monster she's latched herself to. He promises to keep coming back every year until they're too old to make the trip, which obviously is going to end up in like one of those like Hachi stories where one of them comes back and the other person just doesn't show up. Oh, oh no. <laughs> like, isn't that the inevitable <laughs> conclusion of this arrangement? Yep. Yes. I didn't think about that. That's awful. But that's how this movie should have ended. It just should have ended with one of them just sitting. Yeah, it should have been like, her because that would be fine. <laughs> just be like, oh, you lucked out this time. You get to enjoy your weekend. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> they kiss each other and the camera moves outside the cabin at sunset as the theme song kicks back in. The camera pans out to the sea and the credits roll over an ocean at sunset. The play was also sequelized in 1996 as Same Time Another Year, a two-act play, again written by Slade, that follows George and Doris through another five visits all the what? way through to 1993. They lived that long? Apparently, yeah. There are 140 in the last clip. And they're the Queen of England. <laughs> what the hell? 
It sounds from the reviews that I have found that it goes exactly how you'd expect. They discuss aging, grandparenting, sickness, and second marriages, plural. So I'm guessing they remarry but not each other? Yeah, that's weird. That is weird, right? Not, not like, for this couple. But haven't they been saving themselves for each other? Or or did they decide, no, what we have here is too special. Let's not see each other more than once I a mean, year. I mean, honestly, the only reason this relationship probably does work is sure. that they only see each other once a year. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like how during the pandemic, like so many people got divorced because they were like, I had to talk to that person all day. <laughs> I had to work from home. We were in the same room for a lot of it. Uh, yeah, it's rough. <laughs> <laughs> Poor people. Anyway, this movie's uh, all right. Um, I think that this podcast has a bad track record for appreciating movies based on plays, because <laughs> we didn't, we weren't super huge fans of Seems Like Old Times. We hated Tribute, which is from the same, same playwright, same guy. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, and also Alan Alda is just very grating most of the time. Yeah. Well, and I think that there is like. I don't know. It just it, it it a lot of these movies that do that feel like plays. Yeah, they, they don't feel right in the movie setting. And I realize that you know there's different constraints and you know like single single locations or minimal locations really lend themselves to this sort of thing. But like it still doesn't even feel like a bottle movie or anything right. like that. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, it it does to me just because any single location movie like that is always going to feel like a bottle movie to me. Even if we're spanning I'm just years it, and years between them. I'm just saying it still ha- feels like it has different characteristics yes. to me. Yeah. There's just something about the way they talk that is just like, this just feels like a stage play. Right, yeah. It's it's that super witty back and forth dialogue always feels that way. Well, and I think what this, what this play and film try to do is that it tries to be like one act plays with the same characters, but they're different people every time right like it's like oh here's a one-act play as if a hippie and a businessman were were together and, sure and that's met. true and it's just individual scenes it's yeah like you tried to link them together yeah Ex- well, and i think and i think part of it too is that you you kind of end up being a little over the top you know how stage acting is different than than mm-hmm. film acting well i even think that stage dialogue ends up being different than film dialogue no, because you sure. can't have those those intimate quiet moments or to have things expressed solely through visuals or facial expressions because you have to carry everything in the dialogue yeah. Yeah. because people that are you know 300 feet away from you have to get the same thing out of this play and it's just like i feel like that over the topness of it doesn't translate well to film yeah especially when you're bringing the original cast back because they're so used to playing it that way yeah. like when they had jack lemon came back for from the tribute Right. Stage play to the film that he was shouting every line and screaming past the camera. Well, you also have to pause for laughter. Right. Yeah. Like, and I feel that that's what makes the play more interesting. Yeah. Like, he's like, oh, there's a joke. People are going to laugh. They're going to hold on delivering the next lines until yeah. that laughter dies down. Uh, <laughs> but the film version feels like the Big Bang Theory when you take out the <laughs> laugh track. Yeah. And they're all just sitting around awkwardly waiting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's just it's just boom 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 i think it's very well written yeah but uh they, they move on from stuff so quickly that you're just kind of like okay okay back back and forth back and forth back and forth and i do think that um like there's there's important dramatic moments like when he's talking c- talking about michael's death and stuff like that between them that are powerful even even yeah. if you're like feel distance from those characters especially in that segment because 
right up until that moment, he's such a monster. And then they kind of blow off steam with that. And then it's like, okay, I'm literally instantly less of a monster and less endorsing of genocide because I finally cried about my kid's death. And I, I, I had like purposely decided to be a monster for the rest of my life until you helped me get past this thing mm-hmm. that happened. But yeah, I, I, I do like Ellen Burstyn the whole time. I don't like Ellen Alda the whole time. Uh, I, I do think it's weird that we don't have her do anything annoying and that he's kind of annoying in every segment and that yeah. he's a liar all the time and all she's doing is like trying to improve her life and be a nice person. Yeah. I still think that technically I'm going to give this a thumbs up. I would say it's an interesting enough premise for me that it's like coming back to these two characters. It's like the seven up series coming back, you know, after big chunks and just hearing what happened in their lives is interesting. Even if sometimes I, I hate the characters. Yeah. I mean, I think, I agree with you. I will, I will give it a reluctant thumbs up because there's nothing really wrong with it. It's, yeah. it's a perfectly fine movie. It's just not my cup of tea. I think it would not be a reluctant thumbs up if it were Charles Grodin as, as the George character. Like yeah. that by itself would be enough to fix it for me. Charles Grodin and you bring the the hippie segment back down to earth. Yeah. Yeah. Because that, mm-hmm. that hippie sting. <laughs> as she walks into the cabin. It's like, no, don't do that. Uh, I completely agree uh, with the Charles Grodin. Like, yeah. I, I I hear him now. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, like when I'm when I'm replaying the scenes, it's just like, oh, I can hear him delivering that line so much better. Yeah. Um, and being, I think so- he's just more charismatic. Yeah. Well, and he's but, so charming that you'd believe that she'd forgive him for all that stuff. That's right? true. Yeah. <laughs> with Alan Alda, you're like, why are you forgiving him? <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, it's also a reluctant thumbs up. It, it's just just barely turning in the upward direction. Um, I, I was very fascinated. I was never bored by what was happening. Yeah. Um, but I can't think of too many people I would recommend this to, except yeah. for people who enjoy plays. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, oh, here here's a you know an interesting like character piece. Yeah. Because there's six different characters right or six six twelve different characters in, in the, <laughs> over the course of a movie yeah i was i was thinking about making a joke when i mentioned that it was nominated for best actress but not specifying the actress's name because there's literally one actress in this movie <laughs> like there's six characters and five of them are men there's literally they credit the two pilots the two waiters and chalmers outside of this mm-hmm. couple so i guess that's seven characters Our director here was Robert Mulligan. He has said that he made it a point to avoid seeing the play, so wouldn't inform his take on the story. Slade was annoyed at Mulligan for ignoring the source material. Mulligan's probably best known for directing To Kill a Mockingbird. He also directs Inside Daisy Clover, Summer of 42. He also directed a film called Come September, with a surprisingly similar premise, with Rock Hudson and Gina Lola Brigida starring as a couple who spend every September together in the man's seaside vacation villa. That's the same exact plot. It's very similar. <laughs> Came out first. The it, writer did it come out before the play was released? Yeah, because this play was was only a couple years old when the film ah, started. That makes sense. The writer and playwright was Bernard Slade. He's a celebrated playwright who we've already seen his work with Tribute with Jack Lemon. Uh, he also created The Flying Nun and The Partridge Family. The music here came from Marvin Hamlish. In 1974, he won three separate Oscars. One for Best Music Original Song for The Way We Were, another for the score to the same film, and then the third category was Best Music Scoring Original Song Score and or Adaptation 
<laughs> for the sting i didn't even know there was a third music category yeah within a year uh they, they shift the categories around yeah. all the time but uh, now they're just streamlining it there's <laughs> going to be six awards by the end yep and year. and 12 winners for yeah. each award <laughs> yep. he also composes bananas the spy who loved me starting over seems like old times sophie's choice and three men and a baby and he was nominated for an oscar for the title song here the cinematographer here was robert surtees this was his final dp credit and he was nominated for an oscar for the work he's a cinematographer on oklahoma ben-hur mutiny on the bounty dr doolittle the graduate the sting the hindenburg the 76 star is born and a few clint eastwood titles coogan's bluff and two mules for sister sarah which makes sense because we had his son bruce surtees as the dp for back-to-back patreon reviews play misty for me and dirty harry as well as for louis letizia's recent patreon pick night moves the editor here was sheldon khan his first editing credit was on one flew over the cuckoo's nest isn't that crazy his first editing credit mm-hmm. that is crazy after this, he cuts Private Benjamin from last season and Absence of Malice later this season. I know him best as the editor of Ghostbusters 1 and 2, Kindergarten Cop, and Space Jam for Ivan Reitman. Ellen Burstyn played Doris. She was Chris McNeil in The Exorcist, for which she got a Best Actress nomination. She was Lois Farrow in The Last Picture Show. She got a Supporting Actress nomination for that. She was Alice Hyatt and Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, for which she won Best Actress. And Sarah Goldfarb in Requiem for a Dream for another Best Actress nomination. She also got a Best Actress nomination for this, but like I said before, she didn't win. Burstyn actually collected her Oscar for Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore and her Tony for same time next year in the same week. The only other actress to bring home an Oscar and a Tony in the same calendar year was Audrey Hepburn, with a Tony for Ondine and an Oscar for Roman Holiday. Yes, so she's almost, she's on her way to an EGOT. Yeah. Alan Alda played George Peters. He was Hawkeye on MASH. He was Lester in Crimes and Misdemeanors, Ted in Manhattan Murder Mystery, Senator Arnold Vinnick on The West Wing, Uncle Pete on Horace and Pete, Bert Spitz in A Marriage Story. We also saw his work earlier this season, writing, directing, and starring in The Four Seasons. Ivan Bonar played Chalmers. As I said, he was General Sutherland in MacArthur. We also saw him in our Minnesota review of Getting Wasted, and he was Patterson in Tag, The Assassination Game. That's all the credits I have for this one. Yeah. Because there's not a lot here. By the way, uh, Ellen Bernstein does have a, uh, a Emmy. She has an Emmy for a Law and Order, apparently. So she really she just, just needs, needs a Grammy. Grammy. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I think that's everything for same time next year. Thanks again to Justin Aylett for their generous contribution to the show. If there's any title you'd like us to review, our top Patreon tier includes a custom review of any pre-1980 title. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Whereas I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year, and we can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing whatever you choose. We leave you now with the trailer for Same Time Next Year. Doris, don't you understand? No. We're two grown-up people. We have absolutely nothing to be ashamed or afraid of. They have been lovers for over 20 years. Yet they have really only been together for as many weekends. Dorothy, in the first place, I want you to know that what happened last night was the most beautiful, wonderful, crazy thing that's ever happened to me, and I'll never forget it. Or you. Doris. They share something special. My name is Doris. Warm. I think I'm in love with you. And meaningful. 
We had instant rapport. Did you notice that too? No, but I know we really hit it off. A one-night stand that may go on forever. Wow. Universal presents Ellen Burstyn and Alan Alda in same time next year. Okay, but this is the last time. Happy anniversary, darling. Mmm, what was that for? For one beautiful weekend every year with no cares, no ties. No responsibilities. Same time next year. It's a story of adultery. Hello? Of crisis. Yes, this is Daddy. Is there anything wrong? Loss. Doris, I'm sorry. Oh. And pain. About, about everything. Of living. How are you, lover? Learning. And loving. What did you do to yourself? Hey, man, what do you say? Same time next year. It's the hit Broadway play that has charmed, delighted, and moved audiences. We shared things. My God, I, I helped deliver your child, remember? I consider that our finest hour. Didn't Harry like your old nose? Harry thinks this is my old nose. Have we changed much? Oh, sure we have. I grew up with you. Ellen Burstyn and Alan Alda in the same time next year.